I think it needs to be said before what? we start. Okay. It is cold in Chicago. Oh my God. Bone chillingly, instant death cold. The other day, not today, but the other day, my weather puppy was just a pug in a burlap sack looking sad. <laughs> <laughs> And that's for sure the vibe right now. One of the students that I work with had sent around this meme and it's Ralph Wiggum sitting on the bus alone and goes, I'm in danger. And and then the meme was when school hasn't canceled classes yet and it takes me 10 minutes to walk from my dorm to class. It's like, yeah, you are. You 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 are in danger. You what? I walked 15 minutes today. It wasn't cute. No, it's not. It wasn't with it. No. It wasn't all that in a bag of chips. Certainly was not. I hate it when my eyeballs hurt. Oh my God. nothing that you can put on your eyeballs. This genius pointing to myself yep. for the people who only have the audio portion of this podcast. Patreon listeners, you'll never get a video. <laughs> That's a lie. Video. We look like, <laughs> I look like trash. I mean, don't we all? You don't have your bangs down. So. That's, no, I don't. It's, I not like, your, <laughs> it's not your best day. It's not. They've just like enfolded into my face as always. <laughs> this genius was like, you know what? I'm going to stay out of the cold. I'm going to take a bus to the brown line. And my eyes just started streaming tears because it was so cold. And then I turned my head and the wire from my earbud had gotten frozen slightly to my cheek. Oh God, that's the worst. Yeah. And I felt it all day. It was like a little chap spot on yeah. my cheek. Oh my God. My was, highlight was not popping. No, man. I was it breathing was into my scarf to keep my face warm. And, oh, then, and then the saliva and the sweat froze. Yeah. The saliva froze. And I was like, now I can't breathe into my scarf because it's cold. My boss was like, it wasn't supposed to snow. And there's like this light flurry going around. And it's like, it's just all the people who have sneezed. <laughs> and their saliva is just <laughs> frozen and carried on the wind. That's what happens in Chicago when it's the polar vortex. Yeah. Here we are. Welcome back. Rahm Emanuel's last winter in office. Coincidence? I think not. You <laughs> Put a verse about would. that in your next rap, Chance the Rapper. <laughs> All right, should we this mother off? Yes. All right. Okay. Go deep down inside. <sighs> Find your center. <sighs> <sighs> Morgan. <laughs> I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. Hey, Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About long trips. About liminal spaces. As always. As always. Uh, about fine tailoring. Mm, about buying a room across the pond. <laughs> about slavery, but not about slavery. Yet again. Oh my God. About buxom bitches. Mm. Uh, about ableism in action? Oh my god. <laughs> about uh, fat shaming? Yeah. About mistaken identities? And about the 50 shades of gray of the 70s. Oh my god. Kathleen Woodaways. Come on. But this mostly that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are tackling Oof. the grandmother mm. of all modern yes. romance. Although perhaps we're in a new movement now post Fifty Shades. That's an interesting question. Disheartening as that might sound. Mm. This week, we are discussing The Flame and the Flower by Kathleen E. Woodowis. What do you think that E stands for? Is that the first time that E has appeared? I think it is. Elaine. Eroticism. (laughs) 
You can tell immediately where Isabeau's head's at. Who shall provide a summary of this biblical tome? I'm ready. Do it. We open on a sad-ass cottage in the middle of the English countryside. A super sexy scullery maid is doing some chores for her fat aunt. (laughs) Who thinks she's a witch? Who thinks she's a witch? Because her super sexy Irish mom. Because my God, how much white Americans love the Irish. (laughs) So true, though. Heather is the scullery maid. Heather. She has not been a scullery maid her whole life. Her father was of the well-to-do class in London in town, but he died when she was a kid. Later than her mother died, but he died nonetheless, and she was sent to live with her aunt, who treats her very poorly indeed. He gambled away her fortune because he died of a broken heart because his Irish witchy love, Brenna, died in childbirth. That's right. So Heather has a very sad inheritance indeed. One day, her aunt's brother comes to the house, and he is a very well-to-do couturier. Although, okay, hold on. Kathleen Woody Weiss uses this term couturier, but that is a very exclusive term that can only be used by certain houses in the world, and I don't think her uncle's house qualified. And he's like, I'm going to take her to be a teacher at this school, but it turns out he's talking about a brothel. He gives her a fancy dress, tries to rape her. She runs away. He accidentally falls on a paring knife because he's so drunk. He's got a really ugly assistant. A hunchback with flipper hands that are also described as claws. Mm -hmm. And he drools. He can't prevent himself from drooling. So a person with a disability... Who is described as a physical monstrosity. Spoiler alert, in Kathleen Woodywist's novels, she does not have time for subtlety. Outsides match the insides, but only by her standards. So, oh my God, we have so much to talk about if we're using the standard of outsides match insides, Louisa. So Heather, she runs away. She is apprehended by these two men. They're in a uniform. She's like, oh, they're cops. And instead they take her to the cabin of their boat captain, who's this like swarthy North Carolina Carolina plantation owner, which means a lot, as our listeners well know. He rapes her, and then she runs away, and then it turns out she's pregnant, and she finally confesses to her aunt what happened, and her father's best friend, who's a judge, forces him to marry her. Also, where has this fucking dude been all along? Yeah, so they go on a trip across the high seas to In the middle of winter. To North Carolina? Yeah, so they leave London, they go past Greenland because it's faster. They're trying to catch the jet stream because they're trying to beat goods home. This is also an incredible treatise on capitalism. But not. No, not at all. (laughs) So she goes on this boat journey with her forced husband and he's like, guess what? I'm not even going to have sex with you because you're the worst. I'm going to treat you like a servant. There'll be no love between us. You're going to bear my fucking progeny and that'll be the end on it. Yeah, he understood she was already pregnant. He was like, I'm going to make you feel bad. But actually she gets super sick and so he has to nurse her back to health and he's like oh I like her because she's fragile and then they get to North Carolina and they sleep in separate bedrooms and you meet his ex-fiance Louisa who's like the opposite of Heather and that she's very big and buxom and blonde and Heather's just in the grand tradition of Kathleen Woodyweiss I'm petite I'm so hideous I'm just this little wisp of a woman with giant bazungas <laughs> I'm live I'm live I'm willowy like supple who would want me with my perfect skin 
skin. I'm so, not womanly like Louisa, who is obviously too much woman. Yeah, exactly. There's a hard limit on womanness for this book. Oh, it turns out Louisa and Brandon, her husband, had premarital sex. But guess what? Louisa boned every dude around town. A note on Louisa. She is the last survivor of her family. She owns their plantation. familial home plantation. She is explicitly stated to own slaves. The woman who was her house slave was named Lulu, which I thought was saying a lot without saying a lot. Although this book prefers to just say a lot. So. This book tries to have it both ways. We can get to like the problem of slavery, which I'm sure we will. Yeah. But like so many problems. It's just the worst kind of white apologism happening in parts of this book and then falling apart immediately. Anyways, so Louisa, she becomes a villain. Everybody loves Heather. Heather's the sexiest. Eventually, Heather and her husband have sex because he gets drunk at a party. She's given birth to a son, which he's super stoked about. Yeah, he's very into having a son, which who wouldn't be? They have a little rough sex and then they have sex all the time. And then there's this thing with a mill owner worker. Turns out the assistant who's a little haggard has come to North Carolina and he's struck up a relationship with a couple gals around town that he proceeds to murder because they laugh at him on his sexual advances. Not his sexual advances, his romantic advances. Which then become sexual prior to the murder. Well, he talks about how Louisa let him kiss her beautiful white breasts and he says he loved her and then whenever he offered to marry her, she laughed at him and called him a toad so he raped and murdered her. So that happens in this book also. Her husband is accused of the murder and she sets out to prove that he's innocent. She proves that he's innocent and happily ever after. Yeah, imagine that. Louisa's dead. Louisa's dead. The bad tailor who's also a serial murderer of women is killed without trial. A white plantation owner gets off scot-free. Yeah, everything's fine. What happened to Lulu? Did they ever find Lulu? Yeah, Lulu was the one who went to the sheriff and said that she had the exculpatory evidence. All right, so that's pretty much the book. That's the long and the short of it. That's the long and the short of it. Why don't you explain why we chose to read this book? Well... Kathleen E. Woodowis set out to be herself. Boy. Don't we all? Don't we all? Can we all achieve oh it in God, the same way? Oh my God, let's tell the incredible story of this novel. Hang on. I just want to take our readers to the year 1972. <laughs> when <laughs> Kathleen E. Woodowis was a younger woman. My parents hadn't even met yet, I don't think. Neither had mine. And Kathleen E. Woodowis sets out to write a book. And she wants to write a romance novel. And boy, this was her first one out the gate. This was her first book. She submitted it to many publishers. It ended up in a slush pile. And an editor's assistant grabbed a random book from the slush pile to read over vacation. Fell in love with The Flame and the Flower. Kathleen E. Woody had submitted this book for a publication at many places. And best case scenario, if she didn't get an outright rejection, they're like, you need to cut like one to 200 pages of this. Got like a 500 page Yeah, which I would like to note for our readers is actually pretty slim for... Miss Woodowis. Yeah, pretty slim for Miss Woodowis and honestly, pretty average for romance novels that followed her in the yep. 80s and 90s. Pretty regular. For sure. I think we've only recently gotten down to 360, right? Nora Roberts pioneered that in the 1990s mm. where she's like, we need to hit more specific beats. Tightening uh, it up. Yeah, none of this Woodowis 
repetition. Radway has a lot to say about that use of language. Mm. And I would like to share it with you and get your opinion on it later. Can't wait. In the podcast. But so she gets pulled from the dregs of the slush pile and this editor's assistant champions for her is like, I love this book. I couldn't put it down. We've got to publish it. Woody Wiss once again refuses to shorten it and they're like, that's fine. Bestseller, 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 bestseller. Changed romance fiction forever. Really took it out of the basement shelf Mm -hmm. and put it next to mystery and sci-fi and put it on the genre map in a different way. Because it made so much money. Yep. And it allowed romance to be taken seriously not as like a work of art or a work of literature but as something that could make a lot of money. Right. Because we did have romance novels in the vein of you know there was post-Austin pre-Woodowis I think is fair to say we had our gothic romances. Sure. I mean in the grand tradition of romance if we're doing like a history like yeah we have our after Austin we have gothics and after the gothics we have a very particular kind of like Elizabeth Gaskell who did Mm -hmm. North and South Mm -hmm. and then after that moving into the 1900s we have like a particular kind of romance around like a proto-liberation. I'm talking about those uh, mid-century modern gothic romances as they were known. For sure but also that were coming out of England publishing houses. But Avon was publishing in here in the US and like you could get you know 12 books a year Mm -hmm. for you know $1.99 subscription. But Avon had never was not publishing stuff initially in paperback. No, and not this. like this. And this was one of the secrets to its money-making ability is that they initially published in paperback, which was kind of unheard of. But one of the most important things about Flame and the Flower, it's quote-unquote explicit sex scenes. They are explicit. Now, Kathleen Woodowis was facing a problem. She wanted to talk about explicit sex, but we had some very specific mores. Now, 1972, a lot of progress had been made. And in fact, explicit sex scenes exist in literature with a capital L before this, but they do not exist in romance because romance is actually one of the last places that feminism can really take root amongst women. Romance as a genre is inherently patriarchal. That's a bold claim. This is the moment that Kathleen Woodowis was writing in. Romance was all about supporting this idea of a happily ever after that ends in a heterosexual marriage. No sex before then. For sure. You can even see it in Woodowis's heroine, Heather. They were not accepting of a plucky heroine. So Radway, who wrote Reading the Romance, which is a sociological exploration of romance and makes the argument that the important thing about this genre and what makes this genre unique from sci-fi and from horror mystery is that the culturally relevant pieces are not in the text. They're in the behaviors that surround the text and that the text is a condition of our social moment. And that's why it's interesting. But Radway writes in 1984 and she talks a lot about Kathleen Woodowis in this theoretical sociological book. I mean, in 1984, Woodowis would have been at the height of her powers. Woodowis was at the height of her powers, but she writes about interviewing women who read romances. Flame in the Flower was far and away the most beloved romance novel on the shelves, even in 1984. It influenced many other popular romance novelists to enter the genre Mm -hmm. because there's a move happening that's not just, you know, you can write about explicit sex, you can write these enormous books that don't get cut down, you can do all of these things, but you don't have to be a professional writer because Woody Wiss herself was a housewife and then became one of the top earning women in the world after Mm -hmm. this book came out. 
out. And so it gave a lot of other women an excuse. And also the fact that it was a bestseller allowed a lot of women to read romance for the first time and not feel ashamed about it. But one of the key moves that Kathleen Woodywiss made in order to get away with explicit sex was having the heroine be unwilling in the first act. And that was in fact de rigueur for at least the next decade. Mm. I think we start to see, I don't know exactly, but that was important. I think it changes. And I think like it's so important to think about like the things that romance is responding to because by her book, So Worthy My Love, which comes out in 79, the heroine and the hero can have a consensual sex act that isn't penetrative sex before they're married. But yeah, like when you think about how a book or a particular author like moves a genre forward, Flame and the Flower is really important. I think Catherine Woodaweiss's import cannot be overstated. And also the fact that she has such a long lineage, like when we read Shana 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 and the introduction was by an author that we'd already read for this podcast yeah. and like how important it is to have somebody who's unafraid of expansiveness. In 1984, when this book came out, the second most popular romance novel was Shanna. If that feels right. Everyone else, Joanna Lindsay was in third by a mile. I mean, it wasn't even worth talking about. But I think like the interesting <laughs> move between 1972 and then 1984 with Shana 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 is how different our heroines are. And like, that's mm. one of the things that I also love about the this. The pluckiness. The pluckiness, the premarital sex, wherein mm. she takes agency. Like there are two sex scenes before they're married where one's non-consensual yeah. and then the second one, she sets up like a honeypot for him. Yeah, it's almost like you can see the progression happening in Kathleen Woodowis. You can like see the, the first, progression Like happening. her first book, Flame in the Flower, first sex act is rape and then they don't have sex for months and months and months after they're married. A year. A year after they're married. And then in Shanna, we see her first sex scene. She's raped. But you kind of get the sense compared to the rape in flame and the flower that she's just getting it over with and then from there on out within weeks they're having regular consensual premarital sex now it still ends up the successful conceiving of a child and heterosexual marriage Mm -hmm. she never deviates from that but she stops writing by the 90s but i want to read this interesting conclusion well i don't want to read it because it's kind of tricky but basically radway saves her conclusion for her very last chapter and every chapter up to that is just sharing research results and she talks about the fact that romance exists in dual lenses because the women she talks to say this is liberating and people say it's important because it's communicating women's desires but on the flip side of that it's communicating desire in a way that supports the patriarchy because it's always the man in control and these women who are providing feedback say stuff like I can't stand a hero who is not the dominant force in the text Mm -hmm. I want a man to be a man which I think is still in many ways true in the genre there's not a lot of definition of man has really changed there's not a lot of passive heroes and I I would challenge you to think of one passive hero who we've read who we've read yeah we haven't really read a lot of cinnamon buns but like that's an entire genre of romantic hero now but it's like a subcategory Mm -hmm. it's not the status quo but again I think like the status quo has changed substantially from 1984 and like the way in which like assertiveness is depicted has changed a lot yeah I would give you that I think there's a 
lot of toxic masculinity happening in the flame and the flower that you see less and less of but I would still say men in control of their situation there's not a lot of passive guys who are just hanging out on their couch waiting for a girl to come and encourage them to apply for a job there's not a lot of stay-at-home dads I think one of the questions especially because like Kathleen Woodweiss only writes historical romances which then puts like women in a particular kind of precarity that requires on because the historical romance Mm -hmm. as we've recently seen play out in Twitter it's not really about historical accuracy sure of course not and it's about actually undoing those kinds of expectations for the sake of a narrative in fact Radway talks about that yeah and the function of a historical is not at all to be accurate right no not the idea of like potatoes and gender roles and stuff like that my point being that like the things that you can like point to in our modern moment are easier to like map onto a historical context and so like the precarity of womanhood itself is that much more precarious it's like easy to pull all of those pieces out in a historical romance so you're saying a woman is more vulnerable in a historical romance by virtue of just it immediately being bad like, by virtue of it being a bad time right for so women. like right so like you don't have to spend time explaining why it's hard to be a woman because like it's just immediately assumed that in 1800 the status of womanhood is hard mm-hmm. and so then like I think that's one of the ways in which historical romance uses a shorthand to talk about like the precarity of a particular gender this is really interesting because this feeds right into something Radway wrote she said although the story told by all romances can be considered a myth because every book is dominated by the same set of events resolved in an identical way each individual romance nonetheless insists in its very first paragraph on the temporal specificity of the tale it is about to relate romances do not begin by placing their characters in the timeless mythical space of the fairy tale Mm -hmm. rather they are remarkably consistent about relying on one of two specific techniques to inform the reader that fictional time operates as time does in the real world one of these techniques insists that the novel's time is merely the historical antecedent of the reader's time historical novels employing this technique begin as do the flame and the flower the proud breed and the sea treasure those were some of the top fives by making specific reference to the historical date on which the story begins this strategy tacitly avers that the heroine who also typically appears in the first paragraph was a real figure who inhabited the reader's world at an earlier moment in its single continuing history it should also be noted however that while such dating places these stories in the past and suggest that the events have already been completed and resolved the narrative progresses as if those events are occurring concurrently with the account of them this practice preserves the illusion of threat and contingency that accompanies any story whose outcome is unknown so that like you said like by virtue of being in history it creates the illusion of a threat that we know is going to be resolved because really we're reading about ourselves right and or I think, our fantasy selves sure and i think that's interesting about historical romance where it like <clears throat> uses history or time period or whatever as like a shorthand for like vulnerability in a way that's like easier to access in terms of readership Mm -hmm. than being like this is you you're this vulnerable right which by the way when this book came out Flame in the the Flower or Radway Flame in the Flower and Radway but when Flame in the Flower came out we'll get to the rape stuff I'm sure she talks in the book about how her husband can't really rape her that was law until until 1992 until 1992 you could not 
legally rape your wife. Yeah. And in fact, Radway asks many of the readers, how can you like Flame in the Flower? Because they talk about the fact that they hate the BDSME stuff. They hate the dominating stuff. They don't like books that are all about rape sex scenes. They want to know more about sensuality and they want their heroes to be heroes. And so Radway confronts them and says, well, you all love Flame in the Flower. What makes that different? And they say, oh, it's because he thought she was a prostitute and you can't rape prostitutes. Yeah. So a room full of women who were insisting on the progressiveness and the feminism inherent in romance novels were immediately like, no, you can't rape a hooker. In 1984. 1984. Yeah. I mean, that happened in that moment, but I think Flame in the Flower also happened in this genre. And like these ideas, I think, are still like they are in our everyday social movements. Like we say, our romance novels ourselves in the subconscious of our culture, however much doth protest, like I feel like romance is the land of the id and the stuff getting pulled out in romance because it feels so safe. It feels like its flippancy is necessary to the fact that we are exploring these deeper subconscious desires and understandings of the world that even though we can be like oh I don't care I don't want a man to dominate me I want to be on equal footing we still expect like the guy to tell us what to do or to take control of our lives or to harvest us in some ways like at the end of about last night when he just paints her life story without talking to her about it and she falls in love with him because of this act you know that is still not so dissimilar in motivation and execution than many of the ways that our heroine and flame Heather is manipulated by Brandon and the flame and the flower. This illusory of compassion and nurturing that is enacted in these very domineering ways. I think that's like a question of like, and I think about last night is an interesting one to draw on because like, again, like this is a question of how masculinity can operate inside of the confines of compassion, empathy, and like true understanding, which I think is like the thread that's being pulled from flame and the flower to our more modern romances where it's like the thing that the heroine wants other than like a steamy night between the sheets and like whatever is to be truly seen Mm. by an empathetic other Mm -hmm. that also then gives her orgasms and like knows her truest self and like true self is both sexual and like erotic but also like intellectual and like whatever it's like the whole Jerry Maguire like you completely but there are two moves in this book where I think you're exactly right where we can see Heather making herself seen first of all her pregnancy and her motherhood oh my god which is central her motherhood is like extension of like goodness and like self but like my point is like one of the ways in which the romance genre like distinguishes itself is that it gives equal time to heroes empathetic like exploration of self like the introduction of the heroine especially in flame of the flower like introduces boy dude man whatever into his emotional self and like that awakening is as important to romance as a sexual awakening is to a heroine. The other thing I was going to say is when she's sick, she's reflecting on her life and Brandon is able to access this secret part of her without her consent, without her knowledge. Totally. And he doesn't bring it up for like hundreds of of pages. Because of her physical fragility. I have to say, this is my fourth Woodowist. This is my least favorite. What other Woodowists have you read? Did you read anything before Shanna? Yes. So my very first romance novel of all time was a Woodowist. I read it in a what was it? Wisconsin cabin. It's called So Worthy My Love. It takes place in Elizabethan England. Okay. Uh, and what was the second one? A Rose in Winter, which I do want to read because it deals with disability at 180 degrees differently than this book does. Yeah, the book is very cruel, ableist. very ableist, but it says something really 
really honest about the problem of masculinity and the fact that this person who is disabled and considered physically disturbing, he is enraged by the fact that women laugh at him whenever he approaches them. And we're meant to like come to the end of this novel. And in fact, he murders women because they laugh at him and he rapes women because they laugh at him, although he argues that Louisa enjoyed it. And I'm not really sure what side the novel's on in that argument. But we're made to believe that like he is bad mm-hmm. and our hero is good. Mm-hmm. And our hero's goodness should be so obvious next to his badness. But in honesty, like Brandon just hasn't experienced that. Mm-hmm. He hasn't gone through what it's like to look that way. Mm-mm. And he's never been unprivileged. Like there's no yeah. scene of like him working. He's not even like a merchant. He's a plantation owner, first son. He's like yeah. inheriting a ton of wealth. Like he, there's no growth in terms of like his ability to sense like compassion in that way. Like where we see, we've yeah. seen with other characters who really had to like shimmy up the social ladder. And there's this real misunderstanding of capitalism in the text where he oh talks God. about the fact that like another mill owner, if he just didn't own slaves and own bondsmen instead, his mill would make more money, which at once does not make sense. <laughs> Certainly not for 1800 North Carolina. It is feeding into that lie of like, if you're hardworking, if you have a goal to work towards, then you're a better worker. Where in actuality, the goal is just an illusion that was put in your head and you're just working because working is what you do. Also, like the insistence on Brandon's goodness follows through in itself that he's a plantation owner in North Carolina that doesn't own slaves, but literally everyone else that we meet does. Well, and also like, you're not going to tell me that Hattie is a bondsman. She's Hattie called a servant, very specifically. Been with the family for generations. As a mammy. Yeah. And it's like. The book is insistent that she's a servant. Yeah. The book is insistent that they're all servants or bondsmen. All the ladies are servants. But then, like, why do their children live on the property? And why are they running around? And there's like this weird shit happening. It's just the worst reconciliation of America's cardinal sin that I've ever read. Literally. Ever. Oh my God. It is such a fucking train wreck. It is such a train wreck. And it does such disservice through dishonesty. Yeah. If Gone with the Wind was like dishonest and like whatever, whatever, this is like. This is more. This, revisionist. Even more so. Well, I think that's that question of the problem of historical romances because they inherently have to put rose colored glasses on history. I think this is a really obvious and egregious example of that that would not happen. I think simply like romance writers do not set texts in the antebellum South anymore. That's not true. Has something recently come out that's set in the antebellum South that's from features a white heroine and a white hero? Alyssa Cole's series features uh, black heroes and heroines. I feel like... Okay, and like here's a problem with romance, right? Because I think it is constantly responding. But as our nation is incredibly polarized, as the world is polarized, there are certainly disgusting antebellum white hero, white heroine, antebellum Bellum South stuff that we don't read because we aren't reading the conservative side of romance. Mm. Like the conservative side of romance, like there's also an existence of that. There's like an Ashley Wilkes, Scarlett O. 
O'Hara that I'm sure has come out within the last three years. I can't think of a name of it, but like I know it's happening because I read something really, really terrible about colonial holdings in India recently. But yeah, there's a conservative, I would argue, woman-hating version of romance that we don't read. Looking at you, Brenda Novak. But I think that's the thing about Flame and the Flower. It's so difficult is that it's woman-hating without realizing how much it hates women. Yep. The way it treats her aunt. Yep. The way it treats Louisa. The way Louisa it treats... in particular for me. In particular for me, the way it treats that girl who was in love with Brandon who wasn't very beautiful. Oh, Miss Scott. Miss Scott. And she's the first murder victim. And she gets a beautiful dress and she comes into her own and she feels more assuredly herself and she flirts with Brandon a little. And the book just treats her as ridiculous for Not feeling only... beautiful and for attempting to have a conversation with a man who once intimidated her to the point of silence. But and not then only it murders that, and rapes her at the end for her troubles. But like the reasoning that this novel gives for Miss Scott's murder is like her coming out, getting the beautiful dress, but then she begins entertaining beaux in her parlor without a proper chaperone. Like the implication there is that Miss Scott becomes a slut. Yeah, well, her mother gives up on her after she doesn't snag Brandon. And so she's able to do whatever she wants, which just happens to be entertaining beaux in her parlor. She comes alive because of these dresses made by our villain and he offers to marry her and she laughs at him and rejects him we're led to believe and he rapes and murders her and we are to pity her but pity is a form of blame totally and so this book hates Heather's aunt the book constantly talks about her weight Mm -hmm. and how disgusting her body is next to Heather's beautiful body the book takes care to even talk about Heather's beautiful foil Louisa as sagging in her old age the way all women sag but she's sagging yeah the book is so particular that all women must sag all women must give way to gravity and Louisa's Mm. doing it now but whenever we read not like other girls in novels as pervasive as it is in romance novels today that's a form of woman hating I think that's the thing that I think the flame and the flower brought to the surface for me is how much these novels are dealing with internalized misogyny Mm -hmm. and self-hatred that is externalized to the nth degree. Yeah. To like, onto other women. That's one of the things that was very striking to me about this novel is like, usually Kathleen Woodweiss has her heroine have at least one female friend or like there's a female voice that isn't toxic or one that we're led to believe is terrible. There's a judge's wife in this book. Who functions sort of like a mom and then there's Hattie. Mm-hmm. But she's not an equal. She's right. never treated as an equal. And neither is the judge's wife. So then like there becomes a problem here in Heather's isolation that feels unique in this particular Woody Weiss novel, but also like is one of the ways in which I think is interesting that like romance begins to deal with the question of like this internalized misogyny, this like really externalized, gross, like playing into stereotype. Women are mean, women are catty, women are constantly hurting each other. Like this is like old as the hills. Except whenever they're passive little lambs that you want to fuck. Right, but that's- And therefore are a value at their most valuable. Heather is definitely explained to us as the most valuable version of woman. Sure, but what I'm saying here specifically isn't about the relation to the man. It's that like Heather is unique in that she doesn't have a positive relation to a woman that's intimate. Mm -hmm. That like she's missing a friendship, which is one of the ways in which romance begins to like move on this corner of like internalized misogyny, external hatred, playing into the stereotype of women being catty and shitty to each other. And like one of the ways in which romance begins to move
move into that space and having a discussion in that is by giving heroines friends. Mm-hmm. And like, what does it do to have a friend that you can be an intimate with to talk about like all of the things that are going on? And like, how does that intimate relationship, right? Which especially in romances where it's like the secondary primary relationship, like how does that then change our understanding of the heroine to the hero and like our understanding of the heroine to like womanhood in general? And like this but book is really absent on that front. Shanna also did not have a female friend mm-hmm. throughout the text. But I also think the function of female friendship, though, is in romance, even though it exists today and is better than what we get with the flame and the flower as far as like feminism goes. The function of these female friendships as the function of everything in the romance novel is to bring the hero and heroine together on some level. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship is still subjugated to the primary, the primary romantic relationship between man and woman. And by virtue of being typically a fluffed up plot device, are we really understanding the female friendship and that intimacy as central to the identity of the heroine? I mean, I think are we capable of understanding? Does the book care if we understand it? I think way beyond the like superficial, like, yeah, they're best friends. No, I think like some books certainly care more than others. I think some subgenres care more than others, especially subgenres that are interested in how community works, looking at you, paranormal romance. And so, yeah, I think like one of the things that I find so striking about the 70s and 80s romances is how the women operate so alone and like what's interesting here about the flame and the flower is like the primary secondary relationship is between Brandon and his brother operate is a generous reading of what these women do in these books Sure. So it just kind of leaves bobbing on the water, <laughs> okay. honestly. Yeah, certainly our dear Heather Simmons is. But like the brother character in this novel begins to act like as you're talking about, like as a bridge between both hero and heroine. And like one of the functions that friendship serves mm-hmm. then is like a shame function. And like the brother shames Brandon into being a better man, which is like an interesting question about like how intimate relations are levered against each other or for each other. Yeah, I mean, because Jeff, Brandon's brother, is suspicious of his marriage, gets upset with his brother, and then overhears the drunk first mate recalling how he kidnapped Heather and thought she was a prostitute. He explicitly says he raped her and it's your fault. And then Jeff's like, oh, that makes sense. I get it now. And then just goes about supporting the relationship because all of that is okay. Everything that's happened at Heather's expense is okay. Because she's a good and loving woman and Brandon deserves that. Yeah, Brandon deserves that. Why? Who knows? Who knows? Why is Heather even considered a good woman? Other than her virginal goodness? Well, her virginal goodness is gone pretty early on. It's just her passivity. Yeah, and like her softness. Yeah. her like ridiculous whiteness. Her internal monologue is constantly calling herself stupid and foolish. And and cowardly. And cowardly. And then she is. She is cowardly. Yeah, she's the most cowardly widowist heroine I've ever seen. In our final act, she does seek out to confront and solve the mystery. Cool. She fights back against her rapist in the final act, which she did not do whenever Brandon raped her. To be fair, that was her second attempted rape in like six hours. Yeah. So like, you yeah, know, it's that's she a lot. She was like she really overwrought. Matthew as well whenever he attempted to rape she her. She only fights the uggos. She only fights the uggos and I think that's what we're all trying to do on Tinder. Fucking zing. But I just, I yeah, I think this book that so undeniably shaped romance really brought to the surface in an explicit relief 
all of the things that feel kind of icky about the genre to this day for me. And I, and I think the other books I've read up to this point, I've been able to like shrug off like Wild Orchids. I was like, Reaganism, you know, it was a different time. But whenever I sat down to read The Flame and the Flower, I really wanted to understand and I didn't want to be dismissive of the audiences who cared about this book, who really loved this book. I did not want to dismiss those women and men. And so I turned to Radway, who always provides me a lot of context. And I learned so much. And one of the striking things that I think stood out to me is that this is different from our current moment, but it's not that different. And I thought about it in terms of, well, Fifty Shades of Grey has brought lots of new people to the genre Mm -hmm. and was a gateway to this genre and allowed people to think like, you know, I've been publishing fan fiction. Maybe I can publish a romance novel. But if I think about Fifty Shades of Grey, I don't see a lot of formal differences between these two books, the progression of the hero and heroine, the issues with consent. And so can I say we've reached another watermark that is so different from The Flame and the Flower that we have to stick a flag. I'm not sure. I don't think Fifty Shades of Grey and I think a lot of the romance community would back me up on this. I don't think like that's a good watermark for like what especially trade romance or the romance genre is doing. Like the fact that Fifty Shades is explicitly an adulted up fanfic of Twilight is important in the context of like how it functions as both a novel quote unquote and like a romance novel quote unquote. But I'm saying that was this thing that happened when The Flame and the Flower came out. It was like nothing else that had ever come out before. It was not a good example of a romance novel up until that point, but it was so beloved and so influential that it reshaped the genre as we know it today. What I'm saying about Fifty Shades of Grey is that it's not original and that the things that it's doing is like it caught fire and like it's interesting to think about why it did, uh-huh. but like the way in which it like conforms slash doesn't conform to the genre conventions are as important as the fact is it's a knockoff. Maybe that's just a new move. Maybe, but I think like just a new move that isn't super legible to us because we don't have the benefit of hindsight and we don't have the benefit of a sociological study happening a decade and two decades between us. We're a decade off Fifty Shades. Yeah. So I think again, the romance community will back me up on this one. Like Fifty Shades hasn't stood up in the same way that Flame and the Flower has. It hasn't had the same sort of staying power, the same sort of affect, the same sort of touch button, the way that Flame and the Flower has. And like, sure, we're only a decade out. But I think part of the problem of Fifty Shades is that it was novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of its moment catching. But also like its moment was incredibly brief in terms of touch and like in terms of like how it like not to be gross or like punny in terms of how it penetrated. And I think Kathleen Woodweiss and Flame and the Flower is intrinsically different. And what it did to the genre is intrinsically different. Like in this way, like Kathleen Woodweiss, I'll 100% agree new watermark whereas Fifty Shades is more like the tide came in and came back out okay so Fifty Shades objectively bad book yes people who read romance prior to Fifty Shades dislike Fifty Shades yes bad book and a knockoff of Twilight right but I don't think we can discount the new voices that Fifty Shades opened the doors to nor do I think we can discount the economic form reformation of the genre that Fifty Shades demonstrated. 
For sure. Clearly and as a watermark of everything else. This is an EPUBed book mm-hmm. that showed the power of e-readers mm-hmm. as an economic force. It was mm-hmm. self-published. It was fan fiction, which mm-hmm. is a very influential force in romance today. Mm-hmm. And I think that formalism can't be discounted in its influence. I want to make my final point about Fifty Shades of Grey. Sure, I've got some more on it. I think it is really hard for a fan of the romance genre to say anything positive about Fifty Shades of Grey. And perhaps saying it's influential isn't really saying it's positive because I will acknowledge the influence of this text and that I can see so much of what I enjoy today in its pages, but I don't think it's a good book. For sure, this is and I not... Think, I think maybe a similar thing is happening in Fifty Shades. You know, I'm not saying it's a good book. I'm no. not saying it's a good example of the genre, but no. I'm saying maybe it's a good shake up I think what's important is that all of the things that you noted about what Fifty Shades is doing or has done, it's big for e-publishing it's big for fan fiction it's big in terms of like catching capital Mm -hmm. and like I think all of that is true but like none of that has anything really to do with romance and I think like does catching capital not have anything to do with romance I mean it does but like romance before Fifty Shades was already the biggest genre pull of the publishing industry and now it's an even cheaper to make genre pull for sure in the industry now it's even you don't need a publisher you don't need to get lucky on a slush pile to become a best-selling author set it on fire because that shit's banana fosters i don't know and like i'm not like i have to think more about this but like i'm not sure it had to be 50 shades i think like e-publishing was moving and like that's the thing about catching lightning in a bottle but it was 50 Shades. it was 50 shades but like you know like all of those things were already happening and so like then there's a question of like right time right moment and like i think 50 shades like hit that summer really perfectly and like yeah I think Flame of the Flower is doing those things too but also hit something different and like that's why I think like Flame of the Flower is a tome and like I don't know if I want to say pillar but like Kathleen Woodaweiss is certainly a pillar in the same way that E.L. James is like not yeah it's hard to say E.L. James is a pillar but I think what's interesting the text. sure but like that's the thing all of the things that you've named about Fifty Shades isn't about the text itself it's about all of the things that are happening outside of it right about e-publishing about capital about the way in which e-readers happened like none of that is about the text all of that is about like circumstance and so like I'm curious That's interesting I'm curious like and I want to sort of like push this to its furthest extent so like don't at me but like I don't think it had to be 50 shades I think something if it hadn't have been 50 shades I think there would have been something within the next year that would have done that but you think it had to be the flame and the flower I do I think it's easy for us to say that because the publishing world in 1972 was yeah way more secretive totally. way more illusory and elusive yeah. than publishing today right I would just say I know that every part of you and every part of me and every part of any critically thinking person cries out to say no to the idea that Fifty Shades of Grey is a watermark of anything that it's anything more than a weird blip in our collective anything but a members only jacket Hmm. I think it's easy to say that 
But I would say maybe we should pause and rethink that because there were lots of people, I'm sure, who read the explicit air quotes sex scenes in this book and were like, trash, <laughs> not in my genre. That's not what romance is about. Sure, I can just imagine who that human being was. She wrote 92 novels and none of the sex happens until after they're married. In the epilogue. If at all. If at all, only alluded to. Your point is well taken. I think Fifty Shades is important, but the thing that it's important for isn't the text and like that's hard to like sort of wrap yourself around when like the thing that we're critiquing is the text I do think there's something in the text of Fifty Shades in that as not good as it is it is a book that talks about sadomasochism totally in a way that's accessible I know that my mom knows what anal beads are now because you don't think your mom knew what anal beads were in the 70s no her body's ourselves no (laughs) I hope you're listening. Or what are those steel balls that he gives? What are those called? I don't know. It was there's a highlight a, reel of sex toys, certainly. There's a highlight reel of sex toys. There's also the stuff with the tampon. Yeah, that's great. There's lots of sex stuff that happens in Fifty Shades that wasn't happening in most books that most women who read Fifty Shades were reading or that most romance novels were talking about. When we say most, certainly not. And now, if you're writing a contemporary romance and you don't talk about a little ass slapping, if you don't talk about a sex toy, if someone doesn't get tied up, then what are we doing here? It introduced fetishism to the mainstream. To the mainstream. that there were lots of sex Sex books out yep. before Flame and the Flower. Mm. There weren't a lot of best-selling sex books. That's actually a good way to like parse. So like this is a romance. Then there's an argument that like Fifty Shades doesn't qualify as romance. It qualifies as erotica, right? Because like if you took every sex scene out of this book, does mm-hmm. the plot still stand? If you took every sex scene out of Fifty Shades of Grey, the plot still stands. Does it? Yeah. I remember reading Fifty Shades of Grey and thinking I thought there was going to be a lot more sex. Full disclosure, I've never read it. Well, then how can you talk about it? <laughs> because it's such a cultural thing. Like, I've seen the movies. I read Twilight. Show. You can't accuse it of being erotica and not romance if you haven't read it. I read a lot of criticism on both sides of it. I've read a lot of, but I've also read the books. Yeah, I just like, I didn't feel a need. Well, I, I read the, the first two. I really enjoyed the movies because the those people movies. are so sharp. And the, like pointy. The first movie was really beautifully shot mm-hmm. um, and photographed, but the movies really lean on the sex in a way that the books don't because I think the entities that adapted the book were like, this is what ladies want. And then they were like, well, we can't show anal beads. Like, <laughs> that's how it happened. Okay. That makes Are sense. there really anal beads in our bodies ourselves? Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely pick up the Boston Collective of Our Bodies Ourselves. The stuff is beautiful. There's this like incredible move on prostate massage. I remember reading when I was like 12 or 13 and my mom's like very battered 1975 copy. It's fascinating. I love that book. Everyone should have a copy. Also, it's Mad Bush. Sweet, sweet 70s Bush. I think you need to read Fifty Shades. If you're going to walk around here acting like you've read it, passing criticism, being like, I'm fully able to synthesize all this criticism because I've read the book. You got to read the book. Mm. What are you doing? I read Twilight. Armchair, armchair 
psychologist Isabeau co-host come on man I read Twilight and then I had like read E.L. James's fan fiction before it was published I think it's fine if you spent your whole life not reading Fifty Shades of Grey mm-hmm. but you should read it mm-hmm. if you're reading all this criticism about it and you're making well I was curious about like the whole thing and like I remember specifically that summer because I was working at a Kroger the way that they were selling the paperback was in these like huge bins yeah we've like, all seen them yeah. yeah and like that's right we've all seen the huge bins, bins in grocery stores of Fifty Shades of Grey yeah that's important I'd never seen a paperback well that's not true because Harry Potter used to sell that way and Harry Potter <laughs> used to sell that way yeah I remember specifically the third Twilight. book came out that way when Twilight came out did you ever think a bound copy of fan fiction of this book is gonna get sold in bins of this size no because I thought Twilight was trash exactly so the idea that a like adulted up version of Twilight would sell would have been bonkers what if you read Fifty Shades of Grey and you think it's brilliant and it changes your life I can pretty much guarantee that that won't happen it has happened to people though why would you guarantee that it can't happen because I didn't like the source material you haven't read fan fiction of source material you didn't enjoy that was good yeah I have but like this isn't good fan fiction right like, you that's don't the know whole you thing. haven't read it I mean that's like you haven't read it this episode is about the flame of flower not <laughs> 50 shades of gray <laughs> I didn't know that I was supposed to come prepared with something else I've read well, a lot should, of well, criticism you of it off the rails talking shit I'm not you talking shit I'm up. thinking about like what beep, it's beep. done like I don't have to read a thing to know and recognize what it's done oh my god I've not read a lot of books fair enough I've never read war and peace it just seems like you have a lot of opinions about Fifty Shades of Grey. What are your... What, what are, are my your, opinions on War and Peace? Yeah, what are your hot takes <laughs> on War and Peace? I don't know. What? It's not like you're sitting here going, War and Peace is overrated. <laughs> That's what you're doing with Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, and I think there's like a lot of literature to back me up that I've read. And like, that's one of the things too. There's a like, lot of contemporary shit that was not into War and Peace. Not a lot, but there was. There's always going to be negative and positive criticism. Sure. You've got to be able to synthesize that. Sure. But like one of the things that I think was really interesting to me that happened in the years after Fifty Shades and then after its um, film adaptation was like, if you want a smarter Fifty Shades, read this book. And a lot of those lists came out. Yeah. And then I read those books. But you didn't read Fifty Shades. And also, no, how can I you read say Twilight. it wasn't influential? I'm not saying that it wasn't influential. I'm saying that like the way in which it's text, the text proper influence the genre is not something that I saw. Certainly the you, way it was... Well, it'd be really hard to see it if you didn't see the text proper. Oh my God. What I'm saying is the things <laughs> that it affected, like you're right, e-publishing, e-readers, but like that's part of the thing that I'm thinking about here. Yeah. Where it's like if its power isn't in the storytelling itself... I would say the power is also in the text because of the types of sex that it... Depicted. Created, yeah, that it made mainstream and accessible to people reading in public, to women reading in public to putting clothespins on your nipples like I want to think about reading in public like what was it like in the sense that like because you could read it on your ebook and people didn't see the cover right but like people also bought those books with covers and like and then everybody after it had already become mainstream right so like 
that seems like catching a tail after like the star has already launched. And like, I want to think about that in terms of but like, that's, that's how culture works. There's like yeah. early adapters and there's cool people. And then it becomes like a whisper culture. And then I read you really grab it out of a culture. bin in Kroger. Yeah. Because you've heard so much about it because a woman in New York city heard about it from her friend mm-hmm. heard about it from her friend. Mm-hmm. That's how that happens. But like what it means to like have a cover that's accessible. Like I read The Flame of the Flower in like a series of, you know, on the bus and on the train. And like I wasn't embarrassed to be caught reading The Flame of the Flower with this weird cover of the satin shoe in the snow. Remarkably little of this takes place in winter. Yeah, absolutely none of it. Yeah, they're on a boat during winter. (laughs) But like the weird thing was like every time I opened it, I was like, oh, I wonder if people know what this is. And is this legibly romance? How do I feel about reading? reading a legible romance in public. I wonder if other people know that the David's Bridal back is romance or if it's just people who are familiar with the genre who would recognize it. Yeah, I'm curious about that too. If someone saw like the original cover of Bear or the original cover of Flame and the Flower or Shanna, they would know this is a romance novel, right? Anything with Fabio on it, right? Yeah, totally. They would know it's a romance novel. And I also think if you were reading something with the shirtless guy, headless shirtless guy, I love those ones, especially when it's like nose down to the jaw. I want to see a face. Although oftentimes whenever I see a face, he's making a very scary facial expression, which tells me people don't know how to make sexuality legible via the face. That's a good point. And we probably shouldn't be paying them to make covers. But if someone saw one of those backs of a David's Bridal dress, like I don't know that they would know. Someone asked me at work, they were like, oh, look at you reading your fancy historical fiction. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, okay. okay. In the same way that like the gray tie on the cover of the Fifty Shades paperback it's like a wink that's a wink because it's like oh you've probably heard about the gray tie it ties up her wrist and then every yeah but by the time it was like mass marketed as like a physical book it had already been discussed on fucking the today show in the zeitgeist yeah so what's the point yeah it's just a little wink to the people who know it's basically the cover of dune that just came out But think how many iterations of the cover of Dune have had to lead up to that wink. And Fifty Shades of Grey's first ever cover got to be like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's interesting about how fast things move now. God. Or how fast things move just for Fifty Shades. Yeah. Is it ever going to get a reprint though? And like, then like, does reprint even fucking matter? No, because you can always buy it online. Mm -hmm. I think you need to read Fifty Shades. I'll think about it. It'll take you two days. I got a lot of other stuff to read. And you'll be a more informed person because of it. Maybe. I'm reading Nabokov's Nabokov. Thank you. Speak Memory. Mm. And I'm like hmm. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about self right now. You have a lot of thoughts about self. Are any of those thoughts about I need to get myself <laughs> reading Fifty Shades before I talk shit? I can talk shit all the goddamn day. That's why I have a microphone in my hand. And but can you so back natural. it up? Beep beep. I can listeners. <laughs> Your most trusted host. When did you read Fifty Shades of Grey? How old were you? I I read Fifty Shades. What year did it come out? It came out in 2005. I was an undergrad when I read it. Did you read Twilight first? Mm-hmm. I read Twilight when I was in high school. I read Twilight strangely late. I was in college when I read Twilight. Then in that case, you are right on schedule to read Fifty Shades this week. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. What else right, do we want to talk about in terms of the, f- shot. the flower shot? Shot, 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 shot. It is honestly the best shot I've ever had. Dude, I fucking agree. And like, I would drink the shit out of that with some fizzy water. If I was water. 17, I would have mm. been dead already. <laughs>
just turned 18. Oh my God. And our fucking hero is 35. Uh, Colonel Brandon Marianne. I was pleased to read mm. Kathleen Widowis describe breasts as squishy. I did too. Like, I guess she regressed for <laughs> Shanna. She knew what a boob was in this. Maybe she got a boob job between this and Shanna and mm. was like, wait a second. Boob jobs in the 70s, dicey. Very firm. Like an unripened cantaloupe. <laughs> like an unripened cantaloupe. God. <sighs> this book. Yeah. I guess we got to get to our traditional we do. format. But we haven't even gotten to like... What? What part I did mean, we not get to? No, we did it all. <laughs> Did we? I don't know. I have a lot more to say about Jeff. It's I just, like horse riding. I like plantations that don't have slaves in 1800 in we, South they, Carolina. Yeah, that erasure. That, that erasure. We touched on it. It was very upsetting to me. Hattie was extremely upsetting to Deeply me. Deeply upsetting. Also, the fact whenever our murderer is recalling his murder, he's like, Louisa liked getting raped. I could tell that she liked it because she moaned. And I think the book's like, yeah, she probably did. That slut. Oh, and oh my God, they're having this moment of like solving the crime Jeff and Brandon and Brandon's like Jeff did you notice that Louisa was raped and Jeff was like well yes and he was like well how could she be raped and Jeff says she was giving it up to half the town and they're like solved the crime yeah literally says that and I was like this is the first time I feel like I have to murder Jeff did part of you kind of hope that Brandon had committed the murder so Jeff and Heather could be together yes check yes or no yes Check yes if you're a living, breathing, beating person. Jeff turned me on so much. Me too. Jeff was way better and not slut me until that very point. He also has like not a drinking problem. Empathetic. Funny. Jeff is funny. Brandon is not. Babies fucks with babies. We love them. We do. There's the weird Freudian mother stuff. Oh my God. That stuff was fucked. At the end, she's looking at a painting of herself next to his mom and she's like, I get it. I am you. You are me. Let me subsume it. I'll take care of your sons and bear them sons. (laughs) And it was like, ew. Here I am. All of the stuff about (laughs) breastfeeding. I'm like, you know what? I expected Kathleen Woodowis to kind of be a prude about breastfeeding. I did too. No, she's like, this is sensual. And I was like, is it? Is it? (laughs) I know. And like the baby sucking life from my boobs and he was caressing my body and my body was a life giving temple. And I was like, fine, because your son is also your husband and you you are are also also his his mother. mother. Yeah, that was pretty weird. Okay, so I'm going to ask the challenging question. Yeah. And I actually would argue not so challenging. Great. What was the sexiest part? I'd like to preface my sexiest part with I'm currently living through the polar vortex. So the fact that he had her long underwear made especially for her for oh their Atlantic God. voyage. Classic Isabeau sexiest part. Was my sexiest part but no. He made her pants. <laughs> he made her quilted pants. And he gave her a speech about how women should be warm. Yeah. And I was like that's right. Women do deserve to be warm. No my sexiest which- women deserve to be warm. <laughs> Do at me. Yeah, no, it's um, they've just gone horseback riding and it's right before the storm hits and they're making out and then the storm hits and he like has this super deep heart on because they have to go back to the house and he like deep heart on. <laughs> it's his insides and his outsides and he wants to shake his fist at the sky after they've had this whole like <laughs> and it's like warm because of South Carolina <laughs> in the summer and it's like humid and there's like perspiration on their bodies and like her shirt and slip are like 
to her body and like you can see her like beautiful outline and like her boobs are super big because she's breastfeeding and also they were always big yeah they were always big she had huge bazungas now they're even bigger yeah after that like horseback riding scene and they're making out and then the storm comes and like this is my sexiest bit I'm trying to think of like a specific point but I think in general I was always taken aback whenever the book made me feel sexy Mm -hmm. it's a surprise sexy feelings but it's not like it didn't happen often Mm -hmm. the descriptions of clothes you know I think it can be interpreted as like very flippant and very dancy drew her obsession with clothing but clothing is such a form of self-expression and such a way that they even demarcate their relationship and relish that's the thing Mm -hmm. about clothes in this book not only does it like relish the female form but like the way in which she talks about how his fawn britches cover his ass perfectly yeah yeah and it was like no expense was spared in the female gaze in terms of Brandon yeah which I super duper appreciated yeah it's true you know in a moment of like true fear her clothes are physically ripped from her whereas whenever she's intimate with Brandon she's wearing like a gossamer thin negligee of some sort whatever the word for them was and talking about slits up a side and the sensualness of clothing is really beautiful in this book Mm -hmm. and then also his obsession with her and his own self-repression was a big yes from me romance has this interesting way of like servicing women through the patriarchy by centering the male experience of sexuality that like you said in our very first episode allows you to imagine a deeper internality of your partner but being kind of worshipped and admired in that way that I think this book did a bang up job of even though very vague sex scenes super vague it talks about boob kissing which I guess is probably pretty saucy stuff I guess but like even in comparison to Shayna and like her other novels especially Mm -hmm. like really want you to read So Worthy My Love which we should definitely make a shot of I don't know what would be in it but this book is super duper tame but also like tame in the sense that like when I open a Wood I expect a holocaust of emotions (laughs) (laughs) and like this is just like and they expired together and I was like boo yeah yeah it's so funny because I talked about Radway a lot but Radway and her feedback from women readers she was like what do you love about Flame and the Flower they'd be like she goes to an awful lot of places (laughs) 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 I really get the sense that Widowis took all of the feedback from Flame and the Flower very much on board and then created Shanna Mm -hmm. which is like a supernova yeah it's so full of color and explosiveness and it's indiscernible and you can't comprehend it it's very warm it's like even warmer than south carolina in the summer because it's the caribbean it burns <laughs> it burns She's yeah like, you're right we're gonna go to twice as many places people were like i like the kidnapping part they're just like, <laughs> great 16 kidnappings <laughs> they're like boobs are nice but they're a little squishy for my taste she's like turgid boobs boobs one pregnancy make her have twins we're riding horses every other page (laughs) horses are going to be witness to sex Sex. we're going to go to the perspective of Of the the horse horse. (laughs) while it's watching her bone (laughs) 
the thing. That's that's what I want from a Woody Wisp. I completely understand why this was a rupture, but not because I'm reading it and understanding it. Like I think it's a better book than Fifty Shades of Grey, which mm-hmm. I've struggled with a lot ever since I came to that thought of like, what if Fifty Shades of Grey is our generation's flame in the flower? And I've been contemplating that, and I've wanted to not believe it. And then I've been like, well, this is a better book, and I'm like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but it did succeed in making me feel sexy, which Fifty Shades of Grey did not. I also think like its use of the English language is also stronger. Yeah, that opening paragraph about the cottage, you can almost see the Disney scene opening of it. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like you could almost always hear the soundtrack. Exactly. And like Anastasia Steele's vulnerability and cowardice is inexcusable. Whereas I think like Radway points out, Kathleen Woodywiss, her placing our heroine in a historical moment excuses a lot of that. More than that, Radway talks about the brilliance of Woody Wiss's prose as far as like taking us to a place that is different but safe. Yeah. And that's kind of the whole thesis statement of romance is different but safe, right? Like you end up with the roguish man who like fires off your passions instead of like the totally practical children's book illustrator who you met and would raise your child as his own. You know, like you make those dangerous choices in romance novels, but they're never really dangerous because you always... Because you're seen. Well, because it's always going to work out. For sure. But like that's the thing. It's but like, what it's not is, dangerous to choose the roguish man because he knows you. Well, the thing that I think has changed is what necessitates a happily ever after. Mm-hmm. It's not like this book has a happily ever after for the 70s. And for us, we'd be like, she was forced into marriage with her rapist who impregnated her. And then she ends up over identifying with his mother at the end of the book. After what a facing weird place to end. An attempted murder. And rape multiple attempted rapes but that's a happily ever after whereas now we're like she feels seen yeah we've come so far in 40 years just like we demand today not to be raped by every man shouldn't we demand to be seen by every man and isn't saying being seen is a happily ever after kind of like a tacit agreement with like this is the best possible outcome happily ever after isn't that almost a kind of settling but can you call it a settling if it's only your desires given your current moment here's the thing I think it's really interesting that you use suddenly you where her two outcomes are the roguish Irish publisher and the children's illustrator because neither of those are really bad outcomes right like the worst thing that can happen is that she ends up with a man that respects her but, yeah. you know like that's not that bad and I like, will say I don't think the roguish Irish publisher respected her that much because he did lie about his age throughout their relationship and she didn't find out how old he was until like in deference to their- her insecurity which like Lisa Claypass has a lot to answer def- for to my insecurity. Yeah, Lisa Claypas. But yeah, like this idea that like being truly seen is settling, but I think like as a... Hold on. The idea that being truly seen as our ultimate happily ever after Mm -hmm. is settling is sad. Right. And what I want to say to that is like, I think if the happily ever after is changeable, which I agree with. And um, is the thing that is changing. Right. And like changes per time because romance is a genre that responds or potentially reacts if you want to see it that way. I have thoughts about that. Anyway, the idea of being truly seen. And I think like that's really important to like the moment that we're living in where we're like hyperactive in terms of quote unquote being seen. Social media, Tinder, like email, all of the ways in which we 
have to perform interaction that has to like conform or produce a genuine authenticity that is always performed. So then like if you can just relax for a minute and like have someone be like, nah, I got you. I see you. I get it. That to me, sure. Sad, but also like a comment on what it is to be like always under surveillance. I'm trying to think of a book in which the heroine is just seen for herself and not seen somehow in comparison to all of the other tacit ancillary failed heroines that our hero has encountered, right? Mm. Because not like other girls, Mm -hmm. I think is the thing we need to transcend Mm -hmm. in this genre. Mm -hmm. I think the suffragette scandal does really good work in terms of like, not like other girls, like that isn't... Well, the heroine corrects him and is like, well, have you met other girls? But that doesn't change his view of her, which is not like other girls. But it does change. And like, that's like his whole transformation by the end is like, he's, he's like, all girls go to regattas. Yeah. And like, he's planting just- flowers for all the other girls. I'll have to revisit that ending because my initial thing is, I don't know about that. Because like, the other thing is, is like, if the happily ever after is this idea of marriage and complete commitment to one woman. And whenever we talk about marriage, we talk about the idea of forsaking all others Ooh, yeah. because these marriages are not open marriages. No, they're <laughs> monogamous. In the like exactly. strictest westernist sense that there yes, is. Yes, yes, exactly. And so all other women seem beside the point right for a romance novel ending to work yeah how do you have a sense of inclusivity that doesn't denigrate other women if your one woman is the pinnacle I'm curious I think the suffragette scandal does a good job of that because like it's about peculiarity it's about particularity which isn't necessarily to denigrate others and I think like that's a move that I've seen especially in uh, more contemporary romances it's sort of like that rent line I'm looking for baggage that goes with mine Mm. and like I think like that's kind of an ethos rent <laughs> I don't know I've been thinking about it a lot lately because they were supposed to do the live version and then didn't oh they didn't do it no because the guy broke his foot so then they did like tapings and then live portions whatever the fuck that means we couldn't tell what was live and what wasn't did you watch it no I read about it rent's not a good musical guys but it was important in terms of the zeitgeist <laughs> and the watermark. It's true. And it would be terrible if I went around talking shit on Rent without <laughs> ever having actually seen Rent. Have you seen the stage version or only the movie version? I've only seen the movie version because to demand that someone sees the stage version is to demand that someone holds a certain lifestyle and lives in a certain part of the world and has a certain socioeconomic status, whereas movies are much more accessible. They are. They're much more egalitarian. Yeah, that's one of the problems of theater especially American theater it's true I saw it when it came to St. Louis it was fun I'm looking for baggage that goes with mine <laughs> oh my god I had the best idea for a tender bio for a man the other day amazing it just says I hate traveling and I don't give a fuck about Game of Thrones <laughs> Because every Tinder bio I've seen is like, I love to travel and watch GOT. If you don't know what that means, swap the other way. It's like all of them say that. Every straight man on Tinder loves to travel, allegedly. And they also have a picture of a dog or their sister. So you know that they're not going to kill you. Yeah, but there's also this weird thing of like, only if their sister's hot. That is true. (laughs) 
There are no like mediocre <laughs> sisters, on, sisters Tinder. on Tinder. It's like, fuck you. Darcy gets an attractive sister because Darcy is the manic pixie dream girl. But like, none <laughs> the y'all. Darcy. The Darcy. Do you think the modern day Darcy has a hot sister, yes. loves to travel, yes. and watches Game of Thrones? Yeah, and also has deep thoughts about it. Yeah. Like, Ned Stark was wronged. <laughs> it's like, cool, hot take. What would be the three things in a manic pixie dream girl's Tinder bio? The Darcy lo- or the no, manic the, pixie? The actual manic pixie dream girl. I think it would be, I love to dance in the rain. Mm-hmm. I love rosé. Rosé all day. No, I don't know. That's like a little too mainstream now. Okay. Like the thing about the manic pixie dream girl, she's got to have like the whiff of the patchouli about her. Mm. Maybe like Kava than rosé then? No, Kava. I think Lambrusco. Oh, you got it. We you got it. Basement brewskis. Mm. I think it would be, I love to dance in the rain okay number two something something star wars mm-hmm. or some kind of nerd culture piece yeah i think perhaps was- game of thrones or Battlestar galactica uh, Battlestar galactica i would not i would be like wow you're actually into something i feel like she needs to have like a deeper cut than star wars a deeper cut than star oh harry potter there you go oh there my is God. a harry yep. potter reference in her hufflepuff, hufflepuff <laughs> is yep. a manic pixie dream girl Def. And then a third feature. I love to dance in the rain. M. Hufflepuff and coffee mm. talking about how much she loves coffee like cold brew just like coffee in general peace mm. love coffee oh god like talking about some kind of beverage they fetish out, making a fetish out of a beverage speaking of making a fetish out of the beverage try our flame, flame in the flower. flower shots those are the tuts. yeah recipe goes online yeah right now just kidding no we make no guarantees <laughs> but yeah we'll what, put was the, what was the weirdest part of flame in the flower the book not the shot because there's nothing weird about that shot that is all aces um, <laughs> the weirdest part the weirdest part for me is that like i know that mr hints like outsides matches insides like he's a monster he's monstrous yeah however there's like this really disgusting incel explanatory she deserved to die not only because she said no to me but because she was sexually available for others so Mm -hmm. she should have been available to me and the book never really like makes waves with that they're like yeah "Yeah, that that explanation makes a lot of sense yeah and he explicitly says to our heroine like it'll be harder to kill you because you've never done wrong by me in fact you always did my dresses the most justice justice which points out that sexual assault is not about beauty or sexual desire but it does imply that rape is about sexual availability yeah but the fact that like she's raped at the beginning of this book and she is sexually unavailable but like the only way that she is sexually available is that our hero reads her as a prostitute like this book doesn't know what it wants to do with rape it feels weird to say like kudos woodowis you're calling the thing by its name but it's good that she is like there's no question like even at the end of the book when they're laughing and like they've solved the mystery and the murderer's dead and she's like ha 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 and he's like I'm so glad that he didn't rape you I would have killed him sooner and she's like well you raped me and I was like it's weird to me that you're laughing and about then this we laughed together and then it freeze framed and then it had a scroll of text that said the fucking what's his lap Birmingham yeah the Birmingham's yeah. and I was like that's my weirdest part that they're laughing about the rape even though they're both calling it by its name yeah and I was like I don't don't actually know what to make of this because it was traumatic for Heather in the first part of the book. This book is dripping with rape. 
Yeah. It's like a pirate's booty all up in here. It is. It is. I mean, less so. To, to the point where, like, reflecting on pirate's booty, I'm still not convinced it wasn't social commentary. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the thing is, is, like, that's how she could get away with writing about sex, which is so fucked up. And it's also, like, people bought this. And so pe- and so writers were then like, okay, people buy books with rape in it, you know? So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And also, like, the reasoning that readers gave, because Radway explicitly asked them, like, how can this be an acceptable hero to you? And they're like, oh, because she was a sex worker, which they didn't say sex worker, but they were like, he thought she was a prostitute, so she was sexually available, so she could not be raped. These ideas that we hold to be, these truths which we hold to be self-evident in any given moment that we are very lucky to have dispelled for us legally and Socially, the relationship with rape is both a product of its time, but also I would argue a product of the genre. Like this is how it has to be in romance in this moment. This is how sex had to be and had to exist. I think it's really interesting. Courtney Milan said something on Twitter recently where she's like, 10 years ago, we were debating whether or not men cared about consent in historical romance. And like, you know, you have to be aware of like how we figure these conversations. And I thought that was really interesting, like whether or not it's historically accurate to figure a historical hero is like caring about female consent. It's not really in this book about 1799. It's no. about 1972. For sure, in like a big way. But like my point about that being is like Courtney Milan went on to say like, of course there were men, real men who lived in 1799 who cared about consent. And like there's a moment in this book where he's like, we're going to have sex tonight and you get to decide whether or not it's rape or consensual. And if it's consensual, it's going to be great for you. And I'm going to like take you to the stars and like he leaves the room and he's like oh my god it's totally gonna be rape it's gonna be terrible I'm gonna hate it she's gonna hate it she's gonna hate me and like he has this whole conversation with himself about what it means to like take away her consent and like when I was reading that because then he comes back and she's like in a chemise and she's like hey hot stuff and I was like and he's like so relieved yeah and like that was such a strange moment like especially because this isn't about 1799 or 1800 this is about 1972 and what it means to like configure a way a man is thinking about consent, the sex act, how pleasure is formed on both sides. Mm -hmm. And that like clearly Woody Wiss knows that consent is important and that knows that both characters know it's important. Yeah. So in this movement that I think we're always conscious of, which is to say this book isn't really about 1799, it's about 1972. And pretty much every historical is not actually about its historical moment. It's about its contemporaneous moment, the moment it's published in. But perhaps what a historical romance partially does for us is allows us to consider consent and play with it. Not just in the way of like imagine a world always already Mm -hmm. as you know someone like Courtney Milan would write but also something of like this titillates me because I know it's a taboo now Mm -hmm. think about the stuff that was taboo like Marquis de Sade published because he was writing about taboos and now like taboo has changed to the point where like the real problem is consent and so now that's a real area where people feel titillated just the question of consent is either horrifying or titillating or both. And so historicals allow us to kind of get in that paint box of desire and shades and shades. <laughs> 50? 50. I would say there are approximately 50 shades. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, I, I think there is something that the historical allows us to do that the contemporary doesn't. Yeah. The contemporary romance. And that Kathleen Woodywis is, is pretty keyed into in this book. And For sure. That Courtney Milan is keyed into today. Yeah. I think that the historical genre itself inside of romance as the genre, like there's a cipher there that's like a fun key to turn. Do you care about my weirdest part? No, of course. What is your weirdest part? That's my get at my weirdest part. Is the hatred of a fat in this book, but also the adoration of thin. The book spends as much time talking about how desirable and sensual it is to be thin as it does talking about how disgusting and unforgivable it is to be fat. Even postnatal. Even postnatal talks about her perfectly flat stomach and her slender hips. But that she doesn't want to be seen in her ninth month of pregnancy or her immediate postnatal period because she's a fat, ugly cow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't say that, but it says she's shy about her yeah. physical form and, and like, changes behind a screen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's one thing for me to read fat, shamey stuff. And I think it's great that you feel sensual in your body, but to have that thinness so fetishized in this text was not necessarily the weirdest part, but was another weird part I was struck by and that internalized a lot of stuff for me and and was pretty provocative to think about you know I think it wasn't so long ago that I read in Cosmopolitan that like thinner women have better sex and it wasn't able to like explain it but it said they had more intense orgasms and I've always heard that like women with smaller breasts enjoy nipple play more because of like the nerve endings getting oh my god you know it's like stuff that you've read and and, like this book really luxuriates in that idea that because she's small she can get thrown around the same thing that like a streetcar named desire Mm -hmm. trades on which Mm -hmm. is this idea of like a Stanley Kowalski like picking you up Mm -hmm. you know or a Rhett Butler picking Mm -hmm. you up like this idea of being small and light and how much better it feels to be a woman when you are that way yeah or like that it is somehow intrinsically like a better form of womanhood Mm -hmm. like Louisa is sagging but she's also like sexually available which is like but there's even that comment whenever he carries his wife up the stairs and Louisa says something about how pregnant she is and how he might throw out his back he's like she's significantly lighter than you ever were I know And this idea that Louisa is understood to be both very sexual looking, very sexy, very buxom, and still not actually sexy next to this very small, willowy, petite, because she's also not tall. No, she's little. She's just compact. Yeah. A frame. Ew. Yeah. And I think that was, get ready for the millennial phrase. That was the most triggering part of the book for me. And I hate to say that because there's weird stuff about slavery, but I mean... Yeah. I think that says a lot about where my own psychology is at right now. Post grandma's cookie crate being delivered to my office. You know, it's interesting. I like, especially like as you talk about her, like being carried up the stairs and like moments of faintness. And like, I think about the way in which oh, like yeah. Melanie is carried all the time all in the time. Gone with the Wind and like how Scarlet is only carried in one moment of like sex like pure and simple and like non-consensual sex as we're like led to understand because this felt like a book lionizing the Melanie Uh and it was weird to read a Southern antebellum novel lionizing Melanie's interiority. Yeah, yeah, because Gone with the Wind definitely lionizes Melanie, but it does so through Scarlet's interiority, which is interesting and and a little bit of 
how everyone else around Melanie is understood to be treating her. But yeah, yeah, I think you're right. The idea of like peering into the interiority of Melanie. Who just decides that she's like a coward and unfunny and like all of these other things. And I'm like, ugh. The difference was is that Melanie was brave. Yeah. And Melanie was funny. Yeah. And And I can't help but to think Heather's a little bit correct whenever she understands herself as cowardly. Yeah. And also like unfunny. Like she only has like two moments where she makes Jeff laugh and I'm like, well, Jeff's just giving that to you because he feels bad for you. Well, and also because he's horny for you. Totally. Jeff is super horned up for her. I know. And like the other thing is like, I wish I looked like Heather that Jeff would like me. Jeff, 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 Jeff. I also love that Jeff is like willing to believe that his brother murdered a woman. And I was like, cool, Jeff. That's a weird thing to think immediately. About and then his brother's like, how could I rape her when she's constantly giving it up? And Jeff's like, like, oh, you're right. You're, you're, right. Innocent. you're so smart, brother Brandon. How could I think anything else? Huh. Yeah, it was weird. Well, man, sir, no man. No man. Really? Yeah, this is my least favorite Kathleen Woodaweiss. If you want a better one, might I recommend Rose in Winter, which I might revisit because it's so fucking cold out. I also really like So Worthy My Love. There's Mistaken Identity, Kidnapping, Several Different Countries, A Sleigh, and A Bathtub. Kathleen Woodaweiss loves bathtubs. Yeah, and I also really... That might be the sexiest part for me whenever Mm. he gets her the bathtub Mm -hmm. and he's like a little bashful. I totally relate. I love bathtubs. Totally. Oh, you need a bathtub. I'm sorry. I do need a bathtub. We're going to get one. Check my Village. Whatever, we'll get there. Like of the four Woodowist novels I've read, there's been a feat a very big, like sexy scene around a bathtub. There's I've never read a Woody West without a bathtub. She loves them. I get it. Remember that honey pot that Shanna said? It was all in the bath. It was very showtime softcore. God, I love Shanna. I think people should read Flame in the Flower. You know what? Don't read it just Don't to read be it. just to be like, oh, I like romance novels. But if you're someone who's interested in like the formation of the genre and if you're interested in like taking a really critical look and you're willing to challenge your assumptions about the text, read Flame in the Flower. But I guess it's a nomance for me. I would much rather people read Beast. I'd rather people read Beast, which is fucked up. But I'd also like, please read Shanna. Shanna's a big commitment. It's a trip, <laughs> y'all. I guess Beast is a yeah, big commitment Beast is too. A, it's like five hundred pages. But if you if you want to read something from this era, mm, yeah, Beast or the one we recently read by Joanna Lindsay, that Until other Forever, Until Forever, read Until Forever, read Beast. If you're, I tend to really love this era of romance. You really do. I really enjoy it. I think it's got all of the juicy, like what's this about stuff that like you can kind of read it interrogatively and you can also read it pleasurably Mm -hmm. so I really like this era and I would recommend Until Forever or Beast it's sumptuous contribute to our Patreon and maybe Morgan and I will create a recipe book of not only our shots but all of our cocktails based entirely on romance novels with that loosen your stays but never your principles mwah Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>